there, this is Dakota from Gen Z Teens Talk, and my friends couldn't make it today, so it's just me, and I figured that since I don't have someone to converse with, I'd just read you guys some scary stories that I found online. Okay, so this first one is called 911 Calling. Um, I found it on Jezebel.com. You ready? <laughs> this took place when I was about 10 years old. My mother had rather quickly filed for divorce, but she'd only had a part-time job and made very little money, so finding a place to stay that was affordable and available immediately was tough. A friend of hers told her that she and her husband had a little mobile home that was currently sitting empty, and we could rent it for practically free until we figured something else. Immediately, I didn't like the house. Part of this, I'm sure, was due to my parents' abrupt divorce and having my life turned upside down. But it was also just the house itself. We lived in a mountain town, and this mobile home was way up a steep, mile-long driveway. Beautiful pine trees surrounded it, but the house itself looked abandoned and out of place. It had two bedrooms and two bathrooms, so my brother and I shared a room, and my mom took the bedroom with the attached bathroom. It was a very 70s home, with wood paneling and dated fixtures. There were also areas that showed strange damage, like holes in the wall that were badly patched up. For whatever reason, I immediately refused to use the hallway bathroom. I wouldn't even step into it. My mom never really asked me why or questioned it and let me use her bathroom. Anyway, my mom was gone a lot trying to find whatever work she could, so I'd be home alone a lot after school and on the weekends. Each time I received the 911 call, I was by myself. My mom always told us not to answer the door, but we should always answer the phone in case it was her. So when the phone rang one afternoon, I figured it would be my mom, since no one else really had her number yet. There was a woman on the phone who sounded very concerned. Hello, this is 911 and returning your call. We received your call, but got disconnected, the woman said. I immediately got a sick feeling. I told her that I did not call 911. And she asked me if there's anyone else in the house who might have called. I said I was home alone, but I started to get really worried that maybe I wasn't. She said she would dispatch police to our address to make sure everything was okay. At that point, I was terrified to be in the house, so I sat outside and nervously waited for the police, who shut up in about 15 to 20 minutes. The officer asked me if I had called 911, and I said no, but they claimed I'd called them. The officer just sort of shrugged and said, This kind of thing happens sometimes. They say that it can't, that the numbers can't get mixed up, but it happens. He did a cursory glance around the outside of the house and left. I tried to convince myself that the officer was right. It was just a mix-up to call, and hopefully whoever did actually call got the help they needed. About a month later, the same thing happened another phone call from 911 saying they received a phone call from my number. I told them again that it must have been a mistake. The woman on the phone scolded me a bit, telling me that 911 wasn't something to play around with and I was preventing people from getting help. She didn't dispatch any police this time. Again, I was really worried someone was in the house, so I cautiously checked and made sure all the doors were still locked. I don't know why, but I always kept the hallway bathroom door closed. Maybe because of the eerie feeling I got from it. As I was checking the house, I just knew someone was in that bathroom. I was terrified. 
Part of me felt like I needed to open the door to check. Maybe to prove myself wrong, but I was too afraid. So I just sat in the living room, watching that door. It was so quiet in the house that after a few minutes I swore I started to hear faint little sounds coming from inside, like a kind of shuffling noise. I asked my mom to check the bathroom when she got home, and she quickly looked inside. She made me come and look to see that it was empty, and I was letting my imagination get the better of me. The 911 calls happened three more times over the coming months, and only when I was home alone. The fourth time the dispatcher told me I could face criminal charges for what I was doing, and they would contact my parents. I hung up the phone sobbing and terrified. I had that feeling like someone was in my house again, but if I called 911, they probably wouldn't even show up. I felt like the girl cried wolf, only it wasn't me. It was like someone playing a horrible, twisted joke on me. I sat and watched the bathroom door again, hearing noises like someone dragging their fingers across the door. I decided my mom was right, and I was probably just letting my imagination get away. I decided to try and leave the bathroom door open, so I wouldn't get so freaked out by the thought of that someone was in there. Then I got the fifth 911 call. This time, though, after I hung up the phone with the dispatcher, the bathroom door slammed shut. I ran. I ran all the way down our steep driveway and found a place to wait until my mom pulled into the drive. When she arrived, she was angry with me for leaving the house, but she saw how upset I was. I think she, maybe she thought I was acting out due to stress of the divorce. I refused to be alone in that house again, though, so we worked it out so that I would stay later at school or go nearby a friend's house until she got off work. Not long after this, we got a notice from my mom's friend that we needed to move out of the house because she because her mom needed a place to stay. I was so grateful to be moving out. I told my mom she needed to tell her friend that something was wrong with the house, but my mom thought it, that was ridiculous in a way that wouldn't pay back somebody's generosity. I moved around a lot the next few years and tried to forget about that house. It wasn't until I was older that I really thought about it. I witnessed an accident and had to call 911 and the fear and paranoia all came floating back. I decided to do some research, which, honestly, I wish I'd never done. A few years before we moved in, a woman was killed in that house in some kind of domestic dispute. It was days, though, before she was found shut up in that bathroom. Story 2. My Baby I will preface this with the fact that unnatural movements freak me out. A lot. My husband and I were laying in bed one night when we heard a noise. Nothing crazy, just a small rustling noise. We argued over who should check it out, deciding it was nothing, and then tried to go back to sleep. I heard the noise again. What the hell? You go. No, you go. While we were arguing, in whispers, because my daughter's bedroom had an adjoining door, we heard it again near the foot of our bed. I turned my phone on to use the light and saw my daughter on the floor. She was on all fours, cocked her head, turned her face toward the light at the most disturbing angle, and then skittered on all fours back into her room and into her bed. My husband and I were absolutely terrified, pissing ourselves. She was sleepwalking, crawling, and had no recollection. She did this again for a few more years. 
usually while we were watching scary movies. Kids are the worst. Story three, a different kind of grinder. I've only told this story to my closest friends. I haven't even confided in my sister for fear of the obvious shame. Please buckle in because this tale needs to be told in length. I went to college in Chicago, which has a very large gay community. Now, gay men are true champions of leveraging technology to their sexual prowess. Grindr was on the map as the go-to hookup app for years before the straights turned it into a tizzy about Tinder. I normally used Grindr to expedite getting my rocks off, but I was having an off week and decided to use a platform that's more to the point, Craigslist. I posted a listening looking for a hookup with a good-looking, slightly older man, and with hours I settled on the fit 30-something. This was a Friday night, and he agreed to pick me up at my apartment building. Then he would take me back to my place, and we'd fool around. He picks me up at my nearest intersection. He's just as attractive as his picture, yes, but something's off, personality-wise. I can only describe it as he was a little off, but he wasn't off in the slow or stupid way. In fact, it was the total opposite. He was incredibly nice. His voice was kind and light, but there was something too practiced behind it. In retrospect, the more I think about it, the more it feels rehearsed, calculated, like a razor blade hiding in a popsicle. He asked me a little about myself, but then he didn't respond when I'd ask him the same questions. He'd just smile and laugh it off. What I did manage to get out of him is that he worked in real estate remember this. He had told me earlier through email that he lived on X and Y street. I, I wrote this off as a blip originally because these two streets ran parallel, and he essentially told me that he lived in the middle of the road. <laughs> we were in his car for about eight minutes when he had already passed these two streets by a few blocks. I lived in a popular, walkable area, and at this moment I told myself, you can get out of this car now and you can run home. You're still close enough but I ignored my gut. I told myself that I was overanalyzing this. We get to his place after a 35-minute car ride. We're out of the city and in the neighborhood. Right away, his house is clean. But again, it's too clean. Everything was so polished, nothing out of place. There was a Dexter level of cleanliness to it. We go into the kitchen, which was in the back of the house, and after a minute or two of more awkward conversation, I wrap my hands around him and kiss him, except he doesn't receive the kiss. My lips make contact with his, but his lips remain flat and at rest. There's a kind of moment of pause, and he smiles against me. It wasn't a friendly smile. This was a knowing smirk. He tells me this is his first time, and he's very, very nervous. He excuses himself and runs down to the basement. The stairs down are next to the kitchen. They are not a straight staircase, they turn at a right angle halfway down, which prevents me from seeing us downstairs. He's down there for a good five to ten minutes. I hear stuff rustling around, metal things clanking together. I yell down to get him back up. The sound stops. No reply. It starts again. I run to the bathroom and lock the door. I think about jumping out the window. It's a ranch. I text a friend. He tells me to get out, but... I don't want to offend my host. There's a knock on the bathroom door, and he says to meet him in the bedroom. The kitchen is next to the bathroom. I considered pocketing a 
kitchen knife. He comes back up, and we finally start fooling around. He won't kiss, and he keeps telling me this is his first time doing this. The weird thing is that he's oddly comfortable with my body, and he was actually pretty good at it. He got very aggressive at one point. I looked around the room and spotted a blue glass vase. I tell myself that I can use this as a weapon if I need to. He doesn't finish, but I ask if I may finish on him. He agrees. He freaks out after I do. He gets up and without a word, just leaves. He walks down to the basement again. I put on my underwear and walk to the edge of the stairs. I hear whimpers and whispers. There's no one downstairs except for him, of this I'm sure. The clanking metal sounds continue. They're nothing loud. They sound like a scalpel being placed on a metal, metal surgery table, like tools bouncing on the toolbox. He's downstairs for five, ten, fifteen minutes now. I'm fully dressed. I'm giving my friend a play-by-play through text, and he tells me to drop him a pen. I don't know how, so he walks me through the process. When I finally do send him to my location, he says, You have to get out of that house now. Why, I ask? Do you know you're where you are? You're out by the O'Hare. My fight or flight completely kicks in, now understanding that I'm stranded in an area that has no access to public transport, and I don't have a car. I yell downstairs to see if he's alright. All sounds stop. No reply. For a moment, I think about grabbing his keys from his jacket, driving his car a few blocks from my place, and leaving it wherever. At this point, I yell down, I'll be waiting outside. I hear what sounds like chains dropping and footsteps come heavily up the stairs. I run to the door, fumbling with the lock until I rip it open and get outside. He was clothless last time I saw him, so I figured getting dressed would slow down at least a little. I freeze for a moment, and then I took off running. I made it two blocks away before I broke down crying and called an Uber. It was February in Chicago, and it was maybe 22 degrees outside and snowing. At this point, Mystery Man tries calling me, and I hang up. He texts, <laughs> Where'd you go? I say that I got a ride and that I'm okay. They block his number. I hid between two cars at, at a used car lot while waiting 30 minutes for an Uber to pick me up. I saw Mystery Man's car driving around. Two Ubers had already canceled, and I had to call the third Uber to make him promise he wouldn't cancel on me because I was in danger. I block out this experience mostly. There are some nights when I begin to go over all the details in my head. It destroys me and turns my blood cold. And it's the little red flags that deeply unnerve me. One, I'm convinced that we were in a model home, or at least a home that he was selling. Two, he was gay and comfortable with himself, but I believe he was referring to something far more sinister when he was saying that this was his first time. Three, the smartest thing I did, among many foolish choices, was not going down to that basement. I do not think I would have come back upstairs if I had. 4. There's a moment in the end of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo where a man goes down with the killer into his house, knowing by now that he's the serial killer. And the killer says something along the lines of, You knew, but you still came inside. We're too afraid of being rude to go out without animal instinct and get away from danger. I experienced this firsthand. 5. I always think back to the story that was submitted here last year about a man who was last killed by John Wayne Gacy at a hotel as a teenager. 
He says that one day, he saw Gacy's fact on the TV after being caught, and he had a total breakdown, knowing what almost became of him. Something deep inside me tells me I may have a moment like that myself one day. <clears throat> a real fixer-upper. About five years ago, my husband Adam and I decided that it was finally time to start looking to purchase a home. We'd always talked about buying an older fixer-upper home because we had the idea that they hold more charm and character. Plus, we can appreciate a place that has its own quirks, and we love the thought of turning something run down into something beautiful again. With that being said, I grew up in a pretty rural farming town in Indiana that had more than its fair share of rundown houses. The surrounding areas had started to boom a little bit, with farmland being sold off and turned into a new factory locations. Along with new subdivisions for the people coming to work for them, I thought it'd be a great place to start our house hunt. I figured we'd be a lot closer to civilization than I used to be growing up, but not so much that we'd be living a stone away from our neighbors. Adam and I decided to take a drive one summer Sunday afternoon so I could show him some of the back roads of my hometown and to also see what some of the properties we checked out online looked like in person. As we were turning down the main road through town and further into a more secluded country road, we noticed that the very first house on the left was completely abandoned. We pulled into a small patch of the yard where the glass was the shortest and where a gravel driveway used to be to further investigate. It was painted a deep green color, which made it almost invisible against the tall grass, sticker bushes, and weeds that had been grown around it. There was a massive tree in front of the yard whose branches and leaves helped to camouflage this place even further. The house looked as though it was a hundred years old. It looked like it had sat empty for years. It looked neglected, weather-worn, and in need of major love. In that moment, it was perfect. There was nothing but woods across the street and no neighboring houses in sight. So Adam and I thought it probably wouldn't hurt if we just trespassed a little. I completely justified my reasoning by thinking, well, we're interested in buying the property. We're not here to cause trouble. We're doing someone a favor. We could take this burden of a house off of someone's hands. We just need to take a look around it first, that's all. Plus, there were no trespassing signs anywhere, so... I was perfectly armed with my newfound inflated ignorance and arrogance to assess the property. We walked carefully through the brush through the left side of the house, where we noticed a well was still standing, complete with a bucket, rope, handle, and an original overhang. My excitement for a picturesque country home was building. Directly across from the well, there was a side entrance into the house, through what looked like an added-on mudroom. The screen door to the mudroom was closed. However, there was a wooden door behind it that was half open. This was our not really intrusive because we aren't breaking anything to get in, way in. It was probably the mid-90s outside that day. So when we entered, Adam first, we were met with thick, stifling heat. The kind that holds so much humidity that it almost takes your breath away. What we thought was a mudroom was an extended pantry area, or canning kitchen. It was tiny, with one window, an old rusted sink, a small stove, and the walls still had shelves upon shelves of canned and spoiled vegetables and jars. I remember thinking, oh yeah, this'll be great. I can totally remember how to can. 
and we could have a garden and and it also had a doorway into the main part of the house and this is where my elation came to an end through the doorway was the kitchen what remained of the cabinets and sink were against the wall on the left but they were either broken or hanging on for dear life or both the kitchen connected to the wide open living room with one side having walls streaked with black that led up to half to a half sunken gray ceiling there had been a fire at some point the windows on that wall were filthy covered in dust or ash that made the room much darker than it should have been in the middle of the day my heart sank i knew we wouldn't be able to afford a costly repair of a house fire but i kept that disappointing thought to myself the open living area had not one stitch of furniture, save for one small wooden rocking horse that a child would have. The floor was littered with magazines, if someone had thrown a giant stack of them and just threw them up in the air to see where they'd land. Curious as to what the former homeowners liked in regards to reading material, I decided to check them out. Almost every single magazine was related to dolls in some other way. Porcelain doll collecting, Barbie dolls, making dolls by hand, clothing for dolls. I felt a little creeped out by it, but especially under the surveillance of the rocking horse's dead, painted on stair. But I figured that an old lady must have lived in the house before, and I created a self-medicating idea that her husband probably died, and this was the only hobby she had to pass her time. We decided to check out another room that was connected to the half-burned living area. Through the doorway to the left was a weird combination of molded stand-up shower with handicap handles and assisted toilet next to it, divided by the middle of the halal. On the right was a wall made entirely of built-in bookshelves. The shelves were full of paperwork, manila and envelopes, books, and even more magazines. It struck us as a pretty weird setup, but I thought these people must have really loved to read while sitting on the toilet. My husband and I thought we could find out who the previous homeowners were, since some of the paperwork on top of the stack seemed to be old bills. If we wanted to look up property records, at least now we'd have a name to go on. I grabbed a stack of papers and began to flip through them, when about halfway through the changed from being old telephone bills to printed out color pictures on the internet of porcelain dolls. I put the stack of papers back on the shelf and picked up a small, red, five-star notebook. I started from the beginning, casually leafing through, and seeing daily entries and medications taken, blood pressure and glucose measurements written in a neat hand. About 20 pages in, the entries started to change entirely. They became crude drawings of twisted faces done in red ink. The faces had horns or bloody fangs. Then... They became crude drawings of twisted faces, done in red ink. The face it had horns or bloody fangs, then full-on drawings of devils appeared in the pages after. I wanted to believe that a child had picked this up to doodle in, but it felt like this was something much different than that. After the drawings, the notebook became someone's personal journal, written what I assumed was an elderly man's cursive, told of how he went, how he knew he was coming toward the end of his life, and how he remembered being just a young boy when his mother passed away. He described in detail how the wake for his mother was held in front of a room 
in the front room of his home, how during these nights he crawled on top of his mother's body in her coffin to sleep. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Even though I'd been sweating from the thickness in the air, a sudden rush of goosebumps came over me. I immediately showed it to Adam, flipping pa to the pages of devils and snarled faces, and then read aloud the stranger's memories of his mother, just to see if it was the same the second time around. After I finished, he said, well, this just got a whole lot weirder, nodding to what he held in his hands. While I was reading the notebook, he had continued rifling through the mountains of papers. One stack not only had more printed pictures of dolls, but now they contained pictures of real women in torture bondage. Ball gags or electrical tape placed over the mouths, jumper cables twisting their nipples, being hogtied with rope. Sometimes there was more than one woman in the picture. I felt as if a brick had been tossed into my stomach. For some, these images wouldn't be disturbing, but in the context of our visit, my panic was starting to grow. I was torn between wanting to find out more and getting the hell out. Adam reassured me that while it was on the creepy side, it wasn't anything to miss to lose my crap over, since the women didn't seem to be suffering or bleeding. The burned-out living area was separated from the rest of the house by a staircase. The staircase had a room directly across from it, and a small hallway on the other side that led to the main room at the front of the house. We debated on going to the second floor, but decided against it, since it was already felt like we were roasting in an oven and were unsure of the stability of the second story. Going into the room across the staircase, we noticed a few more doll magazines on the floor, but not near the number as the other rooms held. There were scattered plastic doll pieces here and there, random arms and heads. To the left was the original fireplace, with a couple tiny, tiny vases on the mantel. Smack dab in the middle was a framed picture of an elderly couple, smiling and happy. They certainly weren't the type of people that would have had pictures of women gagged and bound hidden away in their bedroom. These people could have been my grandparents, I thought. To the right was a big bay window, and smack dab in the middle was a yellowed piece of paper with faded black printed handwriting on it. It was for anyone on the outside of the house to see it before it became overgrown. Reading it backwards from the inside, it said, If you're here to talk about Jesus, go away. It's kind of hilarious, Adam said, after reading it. Yeah, it kind of is. I chuckled, but something in my brain was now starting to nag me even more. Something wasn't computing correctly for me. Thinking back, my mind was putting together that an elderly couple in this town would more than likely be pretty religious, and by the super small chance that they weren't, it would have been gossiped had about had someone seen that in the window. It was as if the house had held two very different personalities within. I told my husband that. I just wanted to go into one last room down the hallway, and then I would be very ready to leave. Going down the small hallway became darker and cooler. It was a relief from the repressive heat that we'd been dealing with since first stepping inside. The shade from the giant tree in the front yard had blocked out a lot of the sunlight, making it about 20 degrees cooler. We soon realized that wasn't the only reason this part of the house temperature was much more tolerable. Rounding the corner into the last room, it took a few seconds for our eyes to adjust to the difference in light, but the change of the air was noticeable immediately. It was as if we had been stepped into a cave. The smell was dank, and left a dampness in our skin. 
Once things came into clear focus, that's when we saw it. The main reason our senses had shifted so quickly. The large hole in the floor. At first, we thought that perhaps the wooden floor was so weak that it had simply caved in on its own, or that the roof had leaked and caused this exact area of floor to rot away, but upon getting closer, it became obvious this wasn't the case. The hole was about five feet across and went straight down into the earth, with about a two-foot space between the remaining floor and dirt. This hole was there because it was made to be there. My husband and I looked at each other. My heart was racing so fast that I thought it would burst through my chest. I said aloud to him, pointing at it. What the hell is this? Why is this here? I began to panic, my breathing becoming more rapid and shallow. Nothing was making sense, and yet the thoughts that had been running in the background of my brain were all coming together like a jigsaw puzzle. And then we saw them. The worn and faded social security cards. A few old and molded-over driver's license just thrown around haphazardly. Checkbooks. Credit cards. As if someone had emptied their purse or wallet in this room and just disappeared into the hole. I was overcome with terror and dread. I had to get out of this house. My skin felt ecstatic, as if my whole body had been taken over by the sensation of when your foot falls asleep. I had tears forming in my eyes, and my mind just told me to run. Without having to speak, Adam took me by the arm and led us back down the hallway, through the burned-out living room and kitchen, out the side canning room and back out into the light of day. We ran back down the mangled and tangled driveway to the car. Remembering back, I get the eerie feeling that we weren't the only two people in the house that day, alive or dead. As a side note, the house still stands. We never called the police to report us breaking into this house and finding a giant hole in the floor. However, we drove past it about a year later, and the large tree in the front yard had all its root branches removed. All the windows had been boarded shut, and after doing some research, found out that the land sits on it is for sale. The house itself has been condemned. Okay, so that was the final story for today. If I should do this more, I will have to consult with my two friends, who are also a part of this podcast. I'm really glad if you stayed to listen, and I can't wait for another one. Um, thank you for listening. Bye!